0: Take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. We began last week with an overview of this book. If you're new to Prince, I want you to know our normal habit is to walk through books of the Bible, and we began. A long journey through the book of Hebrews with an overview last week, and we'll dive right in this morning to Hebrews 1, 1 through 4 today. Uh, If you have not already received or gotten one of these journals, there are a few of them, I believe, left uh, in the tabernacle and right here in the foyer. This is just, it's the version that I'm preaching from, English Standard Version, and it's just a journaling Bible. So as I preach through Hebrews 1, 1 through 4 this morning, you can follow along and take notes right there and keep this with you, all the sermon notes as we preach through this book. Well, During the age of enlightenment in the 19th century, a new view of God emerged. As was happening in the age of enlightenment, a new desire to elevate human reason above everything else. They began to teach that there was a God who created the world, but did not do anything after that. He simply created the world and let it to continue to exist on its own and has left all humanity to figure God out by our own human reason. It was a philosophy known as deism. Now, because they only believed that which could be understood and that which could be reasoned, it left them in a very difficult circumstance because when it comes to everything about Christ, you can't reason at all. They rejected anything that could not be explained. They rejected the supernatural, they rejected the revelation of God, they rejected miracles and the Bible, and they even rejected their need for a savior. Now, what happens when you begin to teach a God like that is that you begin to believe that instead of God being the center of the universe, you're the center of the universe. Instead of you revolving around God, God is now revolving around you and the result is people end up creating a God in their own image because without revelation, you're simply left to your own reasoning and that reasoning without the Holy Spirit of God cannot come up with the things of God. About 15 years ago, there was a book that was written that identified what sociologists believed was the new religion of the day, particularly among teenagers. As a matter of fact, it was a religion which was believed to be particularly seen among teenagers in the church. It was a new form of deism called moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic therapeutic deism. By moralistic, it means that God's desire is for you to be good, to be just to do what is right. It diminished the person of Christ and the call of Christ to complete surrender, but it elevated the moral teaching of Christ as if those things could be separated. Therapeutic means God's desire for you primarily is to be happy and to be whole and to be healthy, that it focused on your self-esteem above all things. Deism means that We believe in God and he created the world, but he's really not involved in our everyday life. We don't think about God that much. As a matter of fact, the only time we really need God is when we're in a crisis situation because after all, God is really just a cosmic therapist. Now, the sad discovery of this study, which many absolutely agreed to and believe was true, is that kids did not grow up believing this because the world taught it to them. They grew up believing this because the church taught it to them. The reality is that the man-centered, self-help, pragmatic, gospelless sermons of that generation that focused more on your need for self-identity and more on personal application and self-esteem than they did the glories of Jesus Christ, left a generation coming to church but missing Jesus Christ. The church created this. With all of our smoke and mirrors and all of our gimmicks, the church. Raised a generation of moralistic, therapeutic deists. Now, in this age, in which more than we probably would like to admit, this is the view of the day, in which people take Christ lightly, they trifle with Jesus, they're casual with Jesus, they believe that He exists but he doesn't really have a consistent part in your day-to-day life, which whether you would call it that or not is practical deism. In a day in which this is on the rise, we desperately need the truths of Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. We desperately need to be reminded that our God has revealed himself and he has not left us to human reason, but he has revealed himself clearly in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, if you're there in Hebrews chapter 1, say amen. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much more superior to angels as the name he has inherited is much more excellent than theirs. Hebrews 1 1 through 4 is one sentence in the Greek, 72 words. And if you were to do what you used to have to do in English class, what you still have to do when you're trying to understand the New Testament, if you were to diagram that one sentence, you would find that there is one phrase in which everything else in that sentence flows. It is simply this God has spoken to us by his son. God has spoken to us by his son. Everything else in verses one through four is connected to that truth. And even more than that, everything else in the book of Hebrews is connected to that truth. That every single thing that's going to be said after this in all the 13 chapters of Hebrews depends on our understanding of this truth. God has spoken to us by his son. One of the things that's so beautiful to us about the book of Hebrews and the way in which it's written is that there is no intro and there is no context. It doesn't say say from Paul or from Luke or from Barnabas or Apollos or whoever wrote Hebrews. To the church in Italy, grace and peace to you. It doesn't start that way. And there's reason behind that. The reason is because the author of Hebrews as quickly as possible wants to get immediately to this truth. The author of Hebrews from the very start wants to make it very clear that God has something to say and everything he wants to say, he says in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is the final and the ultimate word. As quickly as possible, he gets to Jesus Christ. Now let's take the two parts of that phrase and dive into it a little bit deeper this morning. God has spoken and he's spoken by his Son first, God has spoken. That's the point of verse one. This is emphatically established and extremely important. Meaning that without question here at the very beginning, it speaks against any idea of deism by saying, God has revealed himself. He always has and he continues to make himself known. It says, long ago, at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. It says in many times God has spoken. If you were to open up the Old Testament and start in Genesis chapter one, you'd find seven times God is speaking. You go to chapter two and you would quickly realize that Adam and Eve were not left to their own ability to reason to discover God because God spoke to them. He communicated with them. And from that moment throughout the Old Testament, God is speaking to his people at many times. This is not a rare occasion. He's continually speaking. The truth is, you could say that the entire Old Testament is just following God's people and their response to the revelation of God. Meaning, moment by moment, God would say, do this, and they would do it, and when they did that, God would tell them the next thing to do. Abraham, I want you to go, and I'm not going to tell you where you're going, but by faith, I want you to follow. And the reason it was by faith is God told him to do one thing, to leave, and once he did that, God told him to do the next thing, and the next thing, and the next thing, And that's always the way it's been as we follow Jesus Christ. Jesus says, follow me. And you say, where are we going? He says, follow me. Like the reason it takes faith is is because you don't know where Jesus is leading you. You don't know exactly what it's going to cost, but you have to, by faith, be willing to walk with Jesus in this dynamic relationship in which moment by moment he is speaking to you and you are responding to him. That's life with Jesus Christ. So if you're the kind of person that needs everything mapped out and everything secure, you're going to find it really difficult to follow Jesus on a day-to-day basis. We talk about worship a lot, that we desire everyone to live a life of worship. And how we define worship is this. Worship is responding with everything that you are, your mind, your will, and your emotions to the revelation of God, which simply means this. The way in which we live a life of worship is moment by moment with Christ at the center. We're hearing from the Lord. Through his word, we're constantly hearing from the Lord. And as we hear from him, what do we do? We respond that moment. And we don't know what the next moment is, but we respond in the next moment with our mind, with our will, surrendering ourselves to the Lord, with our emotions, our affections, giving ourselves completely to him. That's the life of following Jesus. God has spoken in many times. He's also spoken, look at what it says there, in many ways. He spoke to Moses through a burning bush. He spoke to Israel through a terrifying cloud and storm. When Elijah needed a big word from God and is waiting for something dramatic, God gave him a still, small voice. This is after he had seen the fire come down from heaven and was expecting another big display like that, to which the Lord said, no, let me just talk to you quietly. To Isaiah, he gave him a vision which brought him to his knees and humbled him as he saw a vision of the glory of God. To Balaam, He used a donkey to speak to him. Reality is, is God has spoken in many times and in in many ways. And just read through the Old Testament. God speaks through songs and he speaks through poetry. He speaks through proverbs and parables and promises and commands and fire and wind in many times and many ways God has spoken. Now, let me tell you why this is so important. Because the reality that God has spoken in many times in many ways makes us understand this. God wants to be known. God wants to be known. He wants you to know him. He has not been vague. He has not been silent. He has continually spoken and he wants you to know him. I love in Exodus 34 When the Lord spoke to Moses and it says that Moses went up to Mount Sinai and the Lord came in a cloud and hovered upon Moses. He spent so much time with the Lord that when he came down from Mount Sinai, his face was glowing from the glory of God that he beheld. And it was in that moment in which the Lord defined himself. And what becomes one of the most important phrases in all of the Old Testament used over and over and over again says this, the Lord, the Lord, A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He keeps steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sins. You see, the Lord has said, I I want you to not only know me, I want you to know me correctly. What God was doing is protecting us from what he knows we're going to do without revelation. We are going to create a God in our own image that looks like us and thinks like us, which is such a terrible idea because we're a total mess. And yet left to ourself, we're gonna create a God that looks like us. And God says, no, no, no. I wanna give you a picture of God that is real because you would never come up with a God this good. You would never come up with a God whose mercy is greater than all your sins. You would never come up with a God who is perfectly just and has perfect wrath, but has perfect steadfast love and kindness to generations and generations. You could never fathom a God like that. So let me tell you about him myself. He's revealed himself because he wants to be known correctly. And because of his desire for us to know him correctly, he's given us one ultimate word, the clearest word, the final word, Everything that God has to say in one word, it is the word that became flesh. It is the fullness of everything God is. It is the reality of all of the shadows of the Old Testament, all put into flesh. God revealing himself to us by his son, the ultimate and final word. So God has spoken. The second part of that phrase is God has spoken by his son. Look what it says. It says, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. Now, people often say to me, well, are we living in the last days? To which the answer is yes, because in the New Testament, the last days is the period between the ascension of Jesus Christ and the return of Jesus Christ. We've been living in the last days for 2,000 years. And for 2,000 years, people thought Jesus was coming back tomorrow because things were so terrible. So, So you don't have anything new here when you think Jesus is about to come back, all right? I have a book in my office, 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 1988. To my knowledge, that didn't happen. I love how people spend all of this time, read all these books, and go to conferences to figure out when Jesus is coming back, when he specifically said, I'm not going to tell you. It's a different sermon. But we're living in the last days. And so in these last days, it says God has chosen to speak. To us, by a son, the ultimate and final word of God. Now listen, Hebrews 1 is a chapter of contrasts. We'll see this more next week. Because what we're gonna see next week is that Jesus is superior to angels. And you wonder why that matters. We'll come back next week. But everything in Hebrews 1 is about a contrast. And the reason is, is because the author wants to show that Jesus is superior to everything. So the contrast is here in verse one and two. Well, God spoke at many times and in many ways by many prophets, but now God has spoken in one way definitively, not in another prophet, but in his own son. In other words, there've been many spokesmen throughout the generations. Now there is one spokesman and everything God wants to say, he's saying through Jesus Christ. Now listen, listen, I don't don't just mean the red letters. So it's not simply the words that Jesus spoke. What we mean by this is in Jesus' coming, in who he is, in what he did and what he said and how he ministered through his death, his burial, his resurrection, his sinless life, his ascension, the fact that he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. All of that is the way in which God is speaking to us. God wants to be known. And the way in which he is known is through Jesus Christ. Listen, everything God has to say and everything you need to know and the answer to every question you have is found in Jesus Christ. That's why a church that gives you a little Jesus is of little help. You don't need little Jesus, you need more Jesus. Every day you need more and more and more Jesus because there's nothing God wants to say that he is not saying through Jesus Christ. He is the final authoritative word. He is spoken through his son and that son is superior to every other word that has ever been given. Now, he continues in the following verses and gives us a little information about the son. Now, you could say that it's enough right there to say that God has spoken and his final authoritative word is Jesus Christ. But, Lest this morning, in an audience much like the one that was receiving this letter originally, lest there be any confusion about Jesus. Lest we ignore Jesus, lest we trifle with Jesus, lest we become casual with Jesus. Lest we fall into this idea that Jesus is just a moral teacher or a self-help therapist or lest we think that somehow we are the center of the universe. Hebrews 1 gives us a little biography of Jesus just to clear things up. He gives us seven statements about who Jesus Christ really is, just to make sure that Jesus has a proper place in our minds and lives. In my doctoral studies, I had a a professor who was one of the most brilliant men I've ever been around in my entire life. You listen to him teach and his grasp of the word of God, of the original languages, you think this is like a a once-in-a-generation mind. He was also from Rome, Georgia. And in the midst of all of his doctrinal studies, he had never lost the deepest Southern accent I've ever heard in my entire life. Which means when you heard him preach and he was a masterful preacher, it took a while, I don't mean this offensive, but it took a while to figure out if he was smart or not. I'm just saying. Like you just weren't sure what, you're just kind of holding, I think, I think he's brilliant, but I'm not sure he's brilliant. And the more you heard, you realized, actually this guy, is he knows what he's talking about. But what I began to discover as I got to know him is he kind of played on this a little bit. Like this was kind of his shtick, you know? This is kind of his thing. And he had a way to take the most brilliant truths and put them in the simplest terms and to use Southern isms in order to communicate. I'll never forget hearing him talk about this passage of scripture, which does declare in no uncertain terms the glory of Jesus more beautifully than any other text in the New Testament. He talked about these seven wonders of Jesus Christ and he said this, if you were to go back and see the seven wonders of the ancient world, if you would go and view the pyramids of Giza, if you would go to the Colosseum in Rhodes, if you would go to the lighthouse in Alexandria, and you would go see the statue of Zeus in Olympia, and you would visit every one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and then you would compare them to the seven statements about Jesus, the seven wonders of the world would look like nothing more than belly button lint. Well, there you go. I mean, that pretty much says it. How much superior is Jesus to everything else in the world? Well, you compare him to the seven wonders of the world and all the seven wonders of the world look like belly button lint. I just, I wanted to put that in your mind this morning as we continue. Seven statements of Christ. Write them down first. He is the inheritor. He is the inheritor. For those of you who are nervous because I have seven more things to say, just hold on. We're, you need this. We came for this purpose and we got to set the stage for the rest of the book in your life. He is the inheritor. What do I mean? Well, it says the son has been appointed the heir of all things. In the patriarchal system, the heir was the son that was chosen to receive everything. And he was honored above all the other sons. He was protected above all the other sons. There was kind of an awe about him. He was, he was special. This is why Joseph's brothers hated him. Because Joseph had these 10 older brothers, but Joseph was the only son of his father's wife, Rachel, and because of that, Joseph declared, I mean, his father declared Joseph to be the heir. And so here is the one that is receiving the special jacket and gets the special treatment and gets the special honor, and all of his older brothers disdain him for that because it was known that someday when his father died, Joseph was going to be the boss over all of them. As a matter of fact, the only inheritance the other brothers were going to get is they got it through Joseph because he received all of the authority that the father had when the father was going to die. He was the heir. Now, God the father has not died. But it says here, he has appointed, you see that word? Jesus, the heir of all things. Matthew 28 is a great cross-reference to that when Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, meaning... God has ordained it so that all authority belongs to me. I am the ruler of all things. And so it is God the father has appointed him the heir. You could say it like this. The father has passed down the family business to the son. Well, you say, what's the father's business? Well, controlling all things. Being the ruler and king and supreme authority over all things, the father has passed down that business to the son. And it says he is the heir of all things. Which means every single thing in heaven and on earth belongs to Jesus Christ. There is nothing... That does not belong to Jesus Christ. Romans eleven thirty six says, "So from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever, right now and forevermore. There is one owner of everything. He has already been appointed the heir. The Father has already given him all things, and his name is Jesus Christ. He is the inheritor. He is also the creator. It's the second one. He is the creator." He is the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. In other words, Christ is the one who looked into the nothingness and out of his own mind and out of his own mouth, he spoke into existence everything that has ever come into existence. This is why Colossians 1.16 says this, that through him all things were created and there is nothing that has been created that was not created through him. There is no created thing that was not created through the mind and the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when it says that He has created the world, it is not the normal word that we would use for world. It is not simply the physical world. It is a word that means all ages and all things. It means he is the one who's created time and space and energy and matter. Every single thing that has been created has been created by Jesus Christ. He is the inheritor, he is the creator, he is the radiator. Whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. And look at verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Which means what radiates from him, what is reflecting from him, is the very glory of God himself. John 1.14, we already quoted it. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory. What did we see in Jesus Christ? We saw the glory of God. One of the hardest things to define is is the glory of God, but let's just think about it like this The glory of God is the beauty, the majesty, the splendor, the holiness of God. It is God's beauty, it is God's majesty, it is God's splendor, it is God's holiness. So the reason Psalm 19 says the heavens are declaring the glory of God is because when you look and gaze into the heavens and God gives you eyes to see, what you see in heavens is a declaration of God's beauty and God's majesty and God's splendor and God's holiness. You look at the heavens and you realize there is no one else like God who could speak these things into existence. Remember that moment in Exodus 33 when Moses who has been experiencing God. I mean, God came down in a cloud and had gotten so much of God that his face was glowing. He just wanted more. And let me just tell you, this is what happens when you get to know the Lord, you want more. And so one of my reasons, I just keep pleading with you to start following Jesus and spend some time with Jesus, even if you don't feel like it, because the more you get to know him, the more you love him. And so Moses just wanted more. And he said this, Lord, would you show me your glory? To which the Lord responded, you can't handle my glory. That's my translation, but it was close to that. That's really what he said. he said. He said, no one has seen my glory and lived. In other words, okay, Moses, if I decided to show you my glory in a moment, you would be completely consumed. We are 93 million miles away from the sun. 93 million miles away from the sun. And if you look into the sun for too long, you're gonna go blind. If you can't look into the sun without going blind, how are you gonna look at the full radiance of God's glory and not go blind? You will be completely consumed. And so even though we cannot look directly into the sun, we feel its heat and we see its light. So it is that God so desiring for you to see his beauty and splendor and majesty has given us his sun that from him we might see the radiance of God's glory. No one has seen God at any time, John 1, but Jesus has made him known. He's the radiance of the glory of God. Everything that we have needed to know, we see in God. He is also the representer. He is the representer. Look at what it says. He is the exact imprint of his nature. He is the representer. That word exact imprint is the word that was used to refer to a king who had a signet ring. And the reason that was significant is because no one else had that ring. Going back to Joseph, you might remember that when Joseph was given authority after he interpreted Pharaoh's dreams, what happened? Well, uh, the king took the ring off and gave it to Joseph, meaning whatever you say is goes because you have my ring So this is a signet, no one else had it, and if the king wanted to make some decree or announcement, he would take some wax and he would put his stamp into that wax and you would know it came from the king because it had the exact representation of his signet and no one else had it. So it is that it says Jesus is the exact imprint of God the Father. Everything that God is, Jesus is. He is distinct. We believe in God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, but he is of the same essence and same nature of God. To see Jesus is to see God taking on flesh. There is nothing you need to know that you do not see in Jesus. He is the representer. He is also the upholder. He is the upholder. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This really is, an overwhelming thought. This idea of holder here is the idea of a continuous action, something that has to be continually done. And what has to continually be done is that the world has to be maintained. The world has to be supported. And Jesus is the one that is maintaining and supporting the world, that everything in this world must be continually kept together. Do you realize if the earth was one inch closer to the sun, we'd all burn up? You know, if the earth was one inch further away from the sun, we would all freeze in a moment. Do you know the earth is tilted at 23 degrees? And the reason we have four seasons is because it's tilted at 23 degrees. If It was tilted at one degree difference. Everything in our system would collapse. So let me ask you, who is making sure that it stays at 23 degrees? Who is making sure we don't get an inch closer or an inch farther away? His name is Jesus Christ that everything in this universe is being held together by him. So if you were to look into the microscope and you would look at a cell and you would see in the center of that cell a nucleus and then inside of that you would see all of these things that are putting the nucleus together and you would realize that everything in our existence is, finds its life in these cells and in this nucleus and realize that every bit of that, that you see inside of that nucleus is there because Jesus has got it there and because Jesus is keeping it there. And then if you were to look at a telescope and you were looking up into the galaxies and you would realize that everything is being held in place there and everything is not collapsing upon us. Why? Because Jesus is holding them into place. Do you know that it's really hard for scientists to tell us how big our solar system is? Some people would say it's about 7 billion miles away. The problem with that is if you take the clouds of stars around our solar system, it's more like 5 trillion miles wide. Our solar system. Five trillion miles wide. Listen to this. We have discovered 500 other solar systems. There are 500 and they're discovering more all the time. So who it is that's keeping all of those together and putting all of those stars in place? Well, the answer is Jesus Christ is holding all of that in place. And listen, it doesn't take him any effort. He's not tired by doing this. He just does it because he's the sustainer of all things. Look at this next one. He is is the purifier. There's two more. He is is the purifier. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And something happens here in the wording. It's worded differently than all the others. He is mentioned after what he has done. And making purification for sins, he sat down. And we do need to pause for just a moment because this is where you come to the understanding that Jesus sees you and loves you and knows you and longs for you. The two key words there that you need to underline are four sins. Write those down, four sins. You see, the problem with these gospel self-help, pragmatic sermons is that they don't address the biggest problem that you've got, and that's sin. Your biggest problem is not your sense of self-worth. Your biggest problem is sin. That every problem you have and every problem I have flows out of the problem of sin. Your brokenness comes from sin. Your dysfunction comes from sin. Everything in our life, all of your idolatry, the sense of meaninglessness, the desire to know who you are and to figure all those things out, that's all sin. And so if the biggest problem is sin, we need a solution for sin, And the God who longs for you and knows that you have been separated from him because of your sin has provided a solution and his name is Jesus Christ. By saying he is the purifier, what it means is this, is that you stand condemned before a holy, beautiful, majestic God in all of his splendor because of your sin, your rebellion against him. God longing to bring you back into right relationship with him has sent his son, Jesus Christ, the perfect radiance of the beauty and glory and splendor of God himself who lived a perfect life but died a bloody criminal's death, not for his sin, but for yours. So that at one moment in time, every sin that you ever committed was placed upon Jesus Christ. Think about this. Every nasty thought you've ever had. Every moment of rebellion. Every disgusting act that you've ever committed. Placed upon the beautiful, spotless Lamb of God at one moment. And in that moment, he took upon himself all of the weight of every sin that you've committed. Until he said, my father, my father, why have you forsaken me? Because... Jesus Christ died as our substitute for our sin in our place. And the result is this. You get purified. All the purity of Jesus Christ belongs to you. Listen, and you are brought into such relationship with God through Jesus Christ that Romans 8 says this. You become a joint heir with Jesus Christ. A joint heir. So all things have been given to Jesus. Hebrews 2 says, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers because we get in on everything that belongs to Jesus if you will simply trust Jesus. Call upon the name of the Lord. Trust him as your savior and Lord. It is in that moment in which we come to know him and he becomes personal. John 1, 12, to all who received him, he gives the right to become children of God. Which means this, listen. Listen. Jesus is not a portrait in a gallery that you go to see. He is not a celebrity that you spot from a distance. He is a savior that is personal and who is to be received and cherished. He is the purifier. The last one is this. He is is the ruler. He is the ruler. After making purification for sins, after his death, burial, and resurrection... He ascended to the right hand of the father and he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, over the next few months, we'll talk a lot about this because there's a lot about Jesus and what is called his session, his seating down. But in this moment, we simply need to know this, that through his death, burial and resurrection, he defeated once and for all that which was defeating you. And that is sin and death and hell. And so there has to be no condemnation anymore. There doesn't have need to be any fear anymore because all of those things which are hovering over you have been taken care of through Jesus Christ. And then after he ascended, what did he do? He sat down. Where did he see? At the right hand of the father. Why? Because the right hand of the father is the place of honor. And the reason he was seated is because right now in that place of honor, his role is to rule and reign over all things. Listen to this. And his role is to be a great high priest who is mediating for you, who is hearing your prayers and is helping you in every moment of sin. Do you realize we're gonna learn in the rest of Hebrews that what Jesus is doing right now is he's saying, listen, if you're struggling, come to me because I've got all the help you need. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the father, listen, with his ear towards you saying, I'm here to help you. I'm here to intercede for you. I'm praying for you. I'm with you. I'm on your side. That is what he's doing right now. And as a result of that, he has become, look at what it says, much superior to angels as the name that he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now, let me ask you this. Why do we need this so much? Well, the same reason those who received this letter originally needed it so much. Remember I said that we're not much different than them because the book of Hebrews was written to a church. And in that church, just like in this room this morning, in the tabernacle online, there are some who are authentic believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. There are also some who, who know the facts, they know the truth, but there is no authentic relationship with the Lord. And this will be revealed at some point because they will fail to persevere. They won't make it faithful until the end. In other words... There's practical deists in this room. You know God exists and you know the facts about God, but God's not involved in your life. He's not involved in your decisions. You don't find your central identity in the Lord Jesus Christ. So what Hebrews 1 says is this. Before we learn anything else, here's what is his most importance. Everything in all of the universe centers on Jesus. Therefore, everything in your life must center on him as well. That's it. Hebrews 1 gives us a banner to raise. It is the banner that we raise as a church. It is the banner we raise as individuals and as a family, as singles, as students. The banner we raise over our life is simply this, Jesus above all. There is nothing that matters more than Jesus. There is nothing more excellent than Jesus. We cannot ignore him. We cannot trifle with him. We cannot be casual with him because there is nothing that matters more than Jesus. He must be everything to us. And a message like this doesn't need six points of application. All it needs is this. It just needs your worship. That's all. He's revealed himself in Jesus Christ. And your response is then to respond to that revelation by saying, Jesus, I I want to be all yours. I want you to be exalted in my life. I give myself fully to you every moment, every decision. You say, well, how does that work? It just works by starting right now saying, Jesus, I'm gonna follow you and he's gonna tell you what's next and you do what's next. And then he tells you the next thing and you do what's next. It just starts with one moment saying, Jesus, I want you to be everything. It is the only response to the seven truths of the glory of Jesus Christ. And may it be yours this morning. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes today. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen to this sermon. May you trust and follow Jesus more and lead others to do the same. For more information, visit us at pabc.org.